Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Coming up on the program, we'll hear how decades of oil and gas drilling in the West has left behind thousands of abandoned, largely forgotten wells. When a state sees a well is plugged, they don't do anything for the most part. And how Wyoming recently attempted to count its entire population of homeless people. But some advocates say the count isn't getting everyone who's really homeless in the state. We cannot count folks who are in a hotel. We will also hear from the Wyoming basketball great who invented the jump shot. Sailors, he says, uh, where'd you get that leap in one-hander? We'll also find out how wildlife biologists are trying to save cutthroat trout and hear an interview with Laramie artist Tara Pappas. Those stories and more all coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. A massive methane leak from a gas storage facility in Southern California has been making headlines recently at Porter Ranch. But Porter Ranch is not the only place methane is leaking. There are millions of plugged and abandoned oil and gas wells in the U.S. And recent studies show some of them are leaking small but measurable quantities of methane. Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports. This is what the death of an oil and gas well sounds like. And that's it. Another one done. Plugged with cement, the well is cut off below ground, covered up with dirt, and then, more often than not, never thought of again. Sometimes a dead well is marked with a tombstone of sorts, a marker listing its unique identifying number. But often, there's no indication at all on the surface that there was once a hole many thousands of feet deep, tapping reservoirs of gas or oil. That's what Inside Energy data journalist Jordan Worfsbrock and I discovered on a recent afternoon. We went searching for abandoned oil and gas wells around Fort Collins, Colorado. We had coordinates downloaded from the state oil and gas database and multiple GPS devices. But actually finding the wells proved complicated. Okay. Supposedly, right where this giant tree is. Yeah, it doesn't look like a well would have been right here. There were several posts in the ground nearby, but none of them was clearly marking a well. Could be either or neither. Could be somewhere completely different, which I guess is the fun of the abandoned well search. In Colorado alone, there are more than 35,000 abandoned wells. There are more than 50,000 in Wyoming. Of the dozen supposed well sites we visited, only one was clearly an old well pad, and none were marked. Which isn't a problem if the wells are truly dead. But new data suggests dead wells may not be all the way dead. Rob Jackson is a scientist at Stanford University. When a state sees a well is plugged, they typically put a check mark by that well in a database or in a file somewhere, and they don't do anything uh, for the most part. Rarely do they go back and test the wells for gas leaks, but Jackson's research group did. Why? Because methane is a potent greenhouse gas, and also potentially explosive if it accumulates in confined spaces. 
Jackson and his colleagues found that in most cases, if wells leaked at all, it was only a very tiny bit of methane. But not always. A small subset of the wells are responsible for the bulk of of the methane leakage that we observe. Those super leaky wells, from what we know, still emit far less than, say, the massive leak in Southern California. But they do add up. In Pennsylvania, one of Jackson's colleagues, engineer Mary Kang, estimated that abandoned wells account for 4 to 7 percent of the state's total man-made methane emissions. But it's hard to say whether those results translate to other states, because nowhere in the country is there systematic monitoring of abandoned wells. Jackson says it's partly an issue of states not having the resources to monitor. But I also think the the states aren't that interested in some cases, in many cases, in, in the data. I'm not sure that they really want to know. When I asked Mark Watson, Wyoming's oil and gas supervisor, whether he saw any reason to monitor abandoned wells, he said he hadn't seen any evidence that it was necessary. It's, it's not rocket science to plug these wells, you know. It's, it's a hole in the ground that's pretty deep, and, you know, you set cement, and cement lasts, lasts a long time. And usually, that's true. But not always. Colorado's Oil and Gas Commission was similarly skeptical that abandoned wells need monitoring. But even if we did want to monitor all the old wells, it's not clear we could find them. Robert Kirkwood is a researcher with the Wyoming Geological Survey. A few years back, he was tasked with locating several hundred active and abandoned oil and gas wells in southwestern Wyoming. What percentage of the wells that you were looking for were not where they were supposed to be? 23%. A quarter of the wells. Some weren't even close. The furthest well was more than a mile from where it was supposed to be. And some of those were just found fortuitously because we were just walking and walking, and then I could see the, the marker through the sagebrush, and I'd be like, there's something over there, you know, walk over to it, there it is. Others, without markers, he never found. Out in the middle of the Wyoming desert, a few lost wells might not be a big deal. But in other areas, like the Front Range of Colorado, where houses and schools and shopping centers are encroaching on old oil fields, it might eventually pose a bigger problem. For Inside Energy, I'm Stephanie Joyce. Now to another aspect of energy production, rural life. On the surface, North Dakota doesn't seem like a state full of risk-takers. It's conservative, faith, and family-oriented. Yet many people here are constantly making big bets on how much money they're going to make next year or whether they're going to have a job in a few months. That's because the state economy is dominated by commodities, raw goods like crude oil, cattle, or wheat. And commodity prices have tanked. As Inside Energy's Emily Guerin reports, small towns have a front row seat to the downturn. The Western Choice Cooperative is a small store in the small town of Kildare, North Dakota. Eleven sixty-nine for you. They have three kinds of customers. Farmers, ranchers, and oil workers. Have a good day. Manager Jesse Sipe shows me how she tries to cater to all of them. There's lick tubs. It's a tub full of cattle mineral, actually. Hose connectors. Several ranchers use these to transport water. And socks. Everybody buys socks. Everybody who comes in here works in a commodity industry. With falling oil, wheat, and cattle prices, Jesse Sipe says... Everything has slowed down. The co-op is like a microcosm of the state of North Dakota. Today, more than 60% of the state's economy is based on agriculture and energy, up from 40% a decade ago. That worries North Dakota State University economist Dean Bangsund. You never want to see 
all of your industries go through these type of periods at the same time. Farm income is down by a third since 2013. Oil and gas tax collections are down by nearly two-thirds. The state is likely to tap into a budget reserve fund for the first time ever. Bankson says small towns like Kildare see the impact firsthand. They talk to the people that are directly affected. They see it in those individuals spending less money. You're much closer to the core effect. Well, I'm Lauren Davernick, and we're in rural Dunn County, west of Kildare. Lauren Davernick is feeling the effect of both low oil and ag prices. He grows wheat. And this year, the price is so low, it won't even cover his costs. So he's holding on to it. A lot of the grain's still sitting in the bins. Dvernik is gambling. Gambling that he can keep the wheat from spoiling on his farm until the price comes up. But he does have another source of income, a monthly royalty check from an oil company. That's a lot smaller than it used to be, though. Production's slowing on the older wells, and the, the price is cut. So everyone's checks are, are decreasing. Now, Dvernik knew the boom wouldn't last, so he never depended on the oil money for his basic expenses. Put it this way, we never budgeted for that. That's over and above. So if it stopped coming, it would not be a, a problem for us financially. It's their grandchildren who may be affected. They'll inherit the oil money one day from three wells on the property. Wells that are named after them. There's the Nadia, the Ben. They got their wells named first. And the Micah Lucas. Micah and Lucas are a little upset that they have to share a well. The Davernicks weren't sure they'd get another oil well, so they decided to make the two boys share. North Dakota practicality. It's what's gotten this commodity-dependent state through booms and busts before. We'll just keep going. We always have in the past. It seems like a hard way to live, though, with all that uncertainty. That's the way we like it, frankly. That's rancher and co-op manager Jesse Seip. The feeling you get from creating something that other people really want is priceless. Like the calves she raises. They're going to be someone's beef dinner someday. And the oil's the same way. You know, the roughnecks are out there. At some level, they understand that they're energizing America. I'm not positive that other people in the world who are just floating through their cubicle jobs have that feeling. People who don't like living with uncertainty have already left rural North Dakota. For the most part, the ones who stayed accept the risks that come with making a living off the land. Boom times and busts. For Inside Energy, I'm Emily Guerin. Inside Energy is a public media collaborative covering America's energy issues. When we come back, we'll learn about how the state hopes to reform health care on its own and about an effort to rescue the native cutthroat trout. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Legislators have been talking about reforming health care in the state for at least 25 years. Access to health care providers is difficult. Finding affordable health care is a challenge. And so after another Medicaid expansion defeat, the legislature's Health and Labor Committee spent the summer trying to find ways to improve health care in the state without spending much money. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports that committee members tried to be creative, 
but it's unclear if their efforts will have an impact. Gillette Representative Eric Barlow says the committee crafted 17 bills that will address a wide range of issues in health care. One bill involves nurses. Getting more nurses, more availability to nursing professionals into the state, you know, that does improve access and quality of care, etc. Direct primary care, that's a bill that's going to um, you know, allow a particular kind of practice, a model where you pay in advance to have certain health care needs met. Barlow says they even crafted a couple of bills that will help local hospitals and nursing homes leverage more federal money. Now, is it the same or as good as, you know, uh, Medicaid expansion or um, improved overall improved reimbursement rates for, for Medicare, Medicaid, etc.? No, it's not. But it certainly, I think, does improve the potential that hospitals and nursing homes and providers are getting closer to what they need to continue viable operation. Cheyenne Representative Sue Wilson, who's also a member of the Health and Labor Committee, says the legislation they're bringing will help a little, but she admits it's going to be a work in progress. We're, we're still trying to maybe give localities some tools and to try to, you know, look at it in a broader perspective. Um, it's maybe not what everybody would have wanted, but kind of working with the situation we haven't given up. <laughs> Let's just say that. Wilson says they do have some legislation that might help get people with limited health insurance better access to health care, but she still sees a need for more creativity. It's opportunities for people who are out in more rural areas to go to, you know, the senior center or the the EMS office, you know, some place where you can put a, a telehealth kiosk and have people check in to a provider from there. Noting that health and mental health needs vary from county to county, Wilson is in the midst of crafting an additional piece of legislation that deals with grants. To try to give localities the opportunity to look at their specific situations and design it rather than designing a one-size-fits-all program. The question is, how do you pay for all this? That question both amuses and frustrates Democratic Senator Bernadine Kraft of Rock Springs. She notes that if the legislature would just expand Medicaid, it would get federal money to address a number of these needs. I think that's our only hope, to really have the kinds of resources, especially now that we're in that economic downturn, uh, that we need to have is to, is to take that Medicaid expansion. I think it's, I've, I've always supported it, but I think it's even more critical now. And I don't think we can do half of what we want unless we do that. House Health and Labor Committee Chairman Elaine Harvey says it does not appear, as if the legislature is anywhere near moving in that direction. The most recent blow came last month when the Joint Appropriations Committee removed Medicaid expansion from the governor's budget. But Harvey says that under the circumstances, she thinks the committee did do a good job. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Now turning to the health of another species, trout. Yellowstone biologists are winning the war against invasive lake trout and bringing back native Yellowstone cutthroat. Penny Preston went out on the lake to watch the gill netting boats that are killing the invasives. 
She recently found the fisheries biologist in Mammoth to discuss the results. Yellowstone Lake is a cold place. If you're out on the lake, even in the middle of the summer, you'll need a jacket. So when I went out in a boat with Yellowstone's leader of the Cutthroat Trout Restoration Project, it was chilly. Yellowstone Lake is the largest freshwater lake above 7,000 feet in North America. It's also very deep, and the water is cold. That's why non-native lake trout have thrived here. They evolved in the Great Lakes. There are three netting boats on Yellowstone Lake every day, all summer long, catching and killing lake trout. Yellowstone's fisheries biologist, Dr. Todd Cool, looked out on the lake from his boat. On any given day, there, there will be upwards of 30 or more miles of gillnet in Yellowstone Lake fishing for lake trout. And they're long monofilament mesh panels of net that extend along the bottom of the lake where on the deeper waters where the lake trout generally reside within Yellowstone Lake. Biologists here believe lake trout were illegally introduced into Yellowstone Lake decades ago. Lake trout eat Yellowstone cutthroats, and by 2008, the natives' numbers were at their lowest level in decades. And the monitoring suggested that the cutthroat at that time were at levels that had occurred previously in history. Um, back in the 1950s, there was a hatchery operation here in Yellowstone Lake where cutthroat trout eggs were harvested. Also, there was a lot of uh, angling harvest of cutthroat trout back in early years of the park. Yellowstone's wildlife biologist, Dr. Doug Smith, notes it impacted other animals. Ospreys have declined precipitously. Uh, they went from over 30 breeding pairs down to four. Smith says there is one area on the lake where some birds nest, but that area is quiet now because the birds weren't getting enough of their favorite food, cutthroat trout and breeding of cormorants and, and white pelicans is down. Worse yet, the bald eagles that used to eat cutthroat are killing the other birds' chicks. They'll also take loon chicks and swan cygnets, and we don't have a lot of those to spare. But things are changing. Cool says the netting boats are killing more lake trout now. You know, some of these boats will catch thousands of lake trout in a given day. Already in four weeks of netting, we've killed uh, about 100,000 lake trout have uh, been killed here in Yellowstone Lake to save the native cutthroat trout. The park reports it killed more than a million lake trout since 1994, half of those taken from 2012 to 2014. In his office in Mammoth, in the middle of the winter, Cool's desk is covered with papers from the research from the lake last summer. That research has some very good news. So in 2015, we, we removed 315,000 non-native lake trout from Yellowstone Lake, and that's a record year for us. It's more lake trout than we've ever removed before. Which leads to more good news. Cutthroat trout continued to show rebound within Yellowstone Lake, and we again saw um, an, an abundance of young juvenile fish recruiting back to the, to the ecosystem. Cool says private donations through the Yellowstone Park Foundation helped put more boats and crews on the lake since 2012, and that helped turn the corner on lake trout. So for four straight years now, the population modeling that we do on our removal program suggests that the lake trout are in a significant population decline. And now biologists are researching a new suppression method. We are applying electroshocking methods to kill the embryos on these spawning sites. Cool says killing the lake trout before they hatch is the long-term solution. From Yellowstone Lake and Mammoth, 
I'm Penny Preston for Wyoming Public Radio. Coming up, the challenge of counting the state's homeless and a remembrance of Wyoming basketball great Kenny Sailors. You're listening to Open Spaces. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Next Thursday in Fort Washakie on the Wind River Indian Reservation, tribal and non-tribal community members will gather together to talk about solutions to escalating racial tensions there. The U.S. Justice Department offered to sponsor the meetings following the shooting of two northern Arapaho men by a white man last summer in Riverton. The forums are part of a four-part curriculum intended to build toward a set of practical goals. Sergio Maldonado is the Northern Arapaho Tribal Liaison for Governor Meade and a committee member working on the forums. I sat down with him on the evening of the second meeting to talk about his own ideas for how racial tensions could be eased in the state's reservation border towns. Through the Department of Justice, there is a program that will address the needs of people who are seeing, experiencing some tangible racial tension, stereotyping, uh, racism, and this is what the program is about. And so how did, you, how did you feel like that first meeting went? I was pleased that the number of people, both mayors, council members, community members, but here was my observation. There was more non-tribal people there than tribal. Too often, the victims of perceived assault are the ones who are screaming the loudest. And this was an indication, this was an example, where they were not there to address it. The choir was there, those of us who are trying to do something. And again, with all due respect, people are busy. But we, we, we could have had a little bit more tribal input. What were some of the current events that kind of prompted this this need for this type of dialogue? From a historical level, I think it's always been just the historical animosities that have existed between tribal people and border town places. And, and then there was the shooting that happened uh, recent, in recent July. months. Was it last July? Do you mind giving listeners just a little bit of a, a little bit of history about that? It was premeditated. This individual knew who he was gunning for. He made no claim to it. He chose two tribal members. Sylvester Stallone was my auntie Doreen Whiting's son. He's my relative. This individual who committed that crime, and I will say it is a hate crime albeit Wyoming doesn't have a hate crime statute or law. But this individual will receive the maximum penalty allowable. But the point being is that we have people 
who espouse that type of attitude, and that is extreme end of the continuum attitude directed towards tribal people. Has but that been building, like, you know, that we have had um, with the discussion over whether the city of, of Riverton falls within the interior the, boundaries of the reservation. Yeah, I, I, that language is always tricky. I, 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 I don't believe that what had happened, this particular incident, is a direct or indirect result of the EPA court action initiated by both tribes for the simple piece of making sure that our air is clean because everybody needs air. It was totally misconstrued and blown out of proportion by the media, if I may. So what has happened here, yes, there's been historical animosities. It's a given, just read history. This is a social dilemma that is across America. So these race relations, tensions that we're seeing in Fremont County with Wind River Reservation and both cities is nothing new. It is certainly not a phenomenon. This has been ongoing. But what do you do when there are um, people like this guy who took a gun and walked into a detox center and, and shot Native Americans? All we can do is, number one, react because he had committed a just a terrible crime. But I venture to say that prior to his carrying out that act, his colleagues were probably aware through his words and actions that there was a serious behavioral change in him. And yet nobody within the city, human resources, supervisor, said anything. Yet it is commonplace for people, what's the term on a street? Smack talk. And yet nobody said anything until he committed his crime. I would say that the victims' families have an extremely clear-cut case of a legal challenge to the city for their failure to be aware of what their own employee was doing. Wrongful death lawsuit. 100 million, 1 billion, just to wake people up. So they have a burden of responsibility there too, but that's never been mentioned. That's just my observation. And is there a, a, you know, something that could have been done in the community on a, on a kind of a, a, a more grassroots level to be making sure that when families do hear that type of racism, that there's some place for them to go? When we hear that type of stuff, I think it's very important. No, I don't think, I know it's very important. The families articulate with children amongst themselves that that type of language is not acceptable. When I hear parents even berating children with language that is not acceptable, I'm stunned. No, I'm not stunned, I'm just, damn. When does it get better? Well, it gets better when you take ownership for yourself. It will get better. Yes, I am an optimist. Yes, I am altruistic. Friends, my own children call me the, the refer to me as, as an old hippie. Yeah, because it can be better. Peace is not the absence of war slash violence, but the presence of love. And it starts here. In your heart. Yeah, that's a tough one. 
thank you so much for taking a few minutes to, to talk to me about this, and I wish you the best of luck with these, these dialogues. Well, on a closing you note, know, I don't think that luck has anything to do with it. We have to create the circumstance, we have to create the environment for change. Luck is when I hit the big 900 million Powerball. That's luck. In this scenario, we still create that circumstance. And to you, Melody, thank you for asking me to, to help you out like this. I'm very glad you were able to make time. Thank you so much. Yeah. You can attend the third of the four-part forums at Fort Washakie this Thursday, February 11th at 6 in the evening at the Wind River Development Fund office in Fort Washakie. Changing gears, last month communities across Wyoming spent one 24-hour period attempting to count their population of homeless people. It's called the point-in-time count, and it's mandated by the feds who use it to track the country's homeless population and divvy up funding. But some homeless advocates say the count is probably off. As Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports, if a homeless person has somewhere to stay during the one night of the count, they're not counted as homeless. On Wednesday, January 27th, volunteers across Wyoming set out to find the state's homeless. Many gave out lunch and hot drinks, and all carried surveys to be taken anonymously by those who said they had no home. Okay, again, these questions are not mine, and if you don't choose to answer them, you don't have to. Okay. Okay? Yep. Do you drink alcohol? Sometimes. The 2016 point in time count took place across the country at the end of January. Nationwide, about 7% of the homeless live in rural areas, but finding them all in a single day can be tough. Volunteer Jennifer Cruz has been driving around Cheyenne all morning and hasn't found anyone. They're not out in the open like you would see in a larger city because they find places. I just met a gentleman who's sleeping on his brother's couch, but he's homeless. The Pioneer Hotel is a cheap place to stay in Cheyenne. Dale Dean doesn't have his own room here or anywhere. He's homeless. But right now he's crashing on a friend's futon. Being this wintertime, you know, it gets very cold. Do you ever have to sleep outside? So far I haven't. I've been pretty fortunate. You know, I've met enough people. That's lucky. There's only one homeless shelter in Cheyenne, and right now it's completely full. But because Dale Dean was able to find a place tonight, this year he won't be counted as homeless. We have to use the HUD definition of homelessness. HUD, that's the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Brenda Little is Wyoming's state homelessness coordinator. And the HUD definition is someone who is in a shelter or who is living in a place not meant for human habitation. What that means is we cannot count folks who are in a hotel. HUD's logic counting the homeless in January is that the cold weather will drive people into emergency shelters where they're easier to find. Shelter space is in short supply basically everywhere. But Little says lack of services is especially pronounced in Wyoming and other rural areas. The point-in-time count in part determines how much federal money state homeless services get. And Little says when even a few homeless people aren't counted, it can make a big difference in the funding. We need to figure out a way to really get an accurate count. Rick Garcia has heard these complaints before. He's the Denver administrator for HUD. But he points out that the point-in-time count is meant for the entire country, rural and urban areas, where most homeless people live. Los Angeles counted over 40,000 homeless people last year. Wyoming counted about 800. We are aware that the count certainly is, is not perfect, but I think the goal is, is that we have a count at one time of the year that everyone in the nation is creating. 
But the point in time count is just one of many challenges that those seeking to end rural homelessness face, says Megan Hustings. She's the director of the National Coalition for the Homeless. The greater number of people who are experiencing homelessness happen to be in urban areas, but there's often a higher percentage of people experiencing homelessness and poverty in more rural areas. Hustings says being homeless in a state like Wyoming is just logistically difficult. For one thing, rural areas lack the public transportation that big cities have, so the homeless often need access to a car to reach things like the food bank and subsidized medical care. And in some rural places, there just aren't any services at all. Question 16 is, how many separate times have you stayed in shelters on the streets in the last three years? More than four times. Yeah. Wyoming homeless advocates working on this year's point-in-time count say they want to do the best they can with the funding they can get. But to do that, they need to know how many homeless people there are in the state. That's why they're putting on another unofficial homeless population count this summer. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. Wyoming basketball legend Kenny Sailors died last week at the age of 95. He was widely credited with creating and developing the modern-day jump shot and was the first to use it as a pro basketball player. But what should not be missed is that he was one of the great players of his time. Sailors led the Wyoming Cowboys to the national title in 1943. He was a National Player of the Year, a three-time All-American, and one of the pioneers of the NBA. But most of his life was outside of basketball. Sailors was a Marine in World War II. He was elected and served a term in the Wyoming legislature. He ran unsuccessfully for the U.S. Senate and was a master hunting and fishing guide in Wyoming and Alaska. He also coached boys and girls high school basketball. Wyoming Public Radio had occasion to speak to Kenny Sailors many times, but what better place to start than having him explain that he invented the jump shot in Hillsdale, Wyoming, while trying to shoot over his brother Bud. Bud and I grew up on a ranch down there at Hillsdale, and he was a good high school ball player, all-state high school ball player, and played here for the University of Wyoming with Johnny Winterholler and some of the other old-timers. And uh, he and I, I, he's four or five years older than me, and so we had a hoop out on the windmill, and We'd go out there to play, and here I was, you know, five feet seven or eight, and him six five. And uh, I know my thinking was, how do I get a shot off over this big bum, you know? And he'd stuff it down my throat, and I started just jumping in the air and throwing the ball. And it eventually developed into a jump shot, basically. I didn't develop it that year. <laughs> I really didn't get the, the shot that I, that uh, that's being shot now, where you're right up over your head, you know, you go straight up and and release it with all fingers and wrists. I didn't get that really developed good until probably about my sophomore, junior year in college. In 1943, Sailors and the Cowboys went to New York, where they won the national championship. We dressed in our boots and our hats, you know, and we went back. They wanted us to put on the Western effect, and they asked us to do that. Get the picture. I'm just a country boy. I haven't been out of the state of Wyoming. And uh, here we're going back east and playing in the Madison Square Garden. Yeah, it was a big deal for us. It really was. Sailor says returning to Laramie as national champs was just as fun. I can't even explain when we came back and got off the train down here at the old depot. Uh, every fire truck in town they had, the horn, horns were honking, they had every kind of a drum and a musical instrument. It was maddening. I mean, they put us up on the fire wagon and we didn't have school for two days just getting the town cleaned up. <laughs> it was quite a, quite a time for us. Yeah. Sailors then was off to the Marines. Then he returned to Wyoming and played one last season 
before heading to professional basketball as a 26-year-old rookie. I played my first year in the NBA, and I made $7,500. Think of that. Of course, you could buy a three-bedroom three home here in Laramie for $3,500. You could buy a new Ford four-door car for $500. I was big money in those days, and I did that in four and a half months. <laughs> you think I wasn't excited? <laughs> His first year in the NBA was 1946 in Cleveland. His coach was Basketball Hall of Famer Dutch Dennert who didn't know much about Sailors or his unique shot. All the books that wrote about basketball and shooting demanded that your feet, both feet, be on the floor when you shot the ball. So he come up to me and he said, uh, Sailors, he says, uh, where'd you get that leaping one-hander? He said, uh, if you really want to go in the NBA, so you're going to have to get you a good two-handed set shot. And uh, actually, for about the first six or seven games of that season, I sat on the bench. I really did. I finally got going and ended up making the all-pro team my rookie year, so I did all right. Saylor says after his first year, he started noticing other people copying his shot. He only played five years in the NBA, though, and says that's because he wanted to get back to Wyoming. I enjoyed my years in the NBA, but I played it for money. I don't deny. I couldn't. I couldn't have bought the Hard Six Ranch. We, Marilyn and I couldn't if we hadn't played in the NBA. It helped us to get a start. Really, it did. Sailors left the NBA and started his career as a guide. After his wife got ill, he returned to Laramie. He says he was surprised at the amount of mail he got over the years, asking about one topic: the jump shot. Sailor says many people asked, are you positive you invented it? Ray Meyer from DePaul, who coached there for 50 years, is a real legend of the game in that Chicago area, well, all over the country, but especially in that Chicago area. He said it the best, I think. He said, Sailors may not have been the first player to jump in the air and shoot the ball, but he developed the shot that's being used today. That's the way he put it. I like that. Kenny Saylor's famous number four is retired and hangs in the arena auditorium, where it watches over those using his shot over and over. When we come back, we'll talk about research surrounding hunter-gatherers, and we'll meet Laramie artist Tara Pappas. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Around 12,000 years ago, hunter-gatherers began to settle in one place and farm the land. It is widely thought to be the first time the human population began to grow at a faster rate. However, a recent study published in the scientific journal PNAS is challenging that idea. Harvard astrophysicist Gibran Zahid was the head author of the paper. Co-authors Professor Robert Kelly and Eric Robinson from the University of Wyoming looked at radiocarbon dates to determine the population size of hunter-gatherer communities in Wyoming and Colorado. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard sat down with the two archaeologists. Professor Kelly, can you tell us a little about some of the research you two have done that went into this new study on population growth? Just a couple of years ago, we did another study just in northwestern Wyoming where we looked at the relationship between radiocarbon dates and climate. And the reason we did that was we were using the radiocarbon dates as a measure of the size of human population over time. And, and we found this very tight relationship between climate and the number of radiocarbon dates uh, for any given unit of, of time. So it, it suggested that climate had a very strong influence over the size of the, the aboriginal population. 
an offshoot of it was this discovery that the rate of population growth appeared to be about 0.04%, which is really quite, quite small. And it appeared to be similar to what other people had found in several other places in the world, regardless of whether they were dealing with an ancient hunting and gathering population or some of the early agricultural populations. And that's a little bit different from what people had originally thought or thought before. Is that right, Eric? Absolutely. Um, The common knowledge is that uh, when you have an agricultural surplus, your population will rise due to that surplus. You're not as, um, as determined by the local environments that you live in. This is common knowledge. Um, So it's very counter to that. With this discovery that you have made, how does this change how we look at human history? In sometime in the 19th century, largely as a product of industrialized agriculture and a whole series of medical advances, we know that the rate of population growth really picked up. The world's population around 1850 stood at 1 billion people. Well, we're not even 200 years later, and we're well over 7 billion people. So, you know, we've more than doubled and doubled again the the human population. So there's a big change in the 19th century. Some researchers argue that the, the first change was with agriculture. We're not so sure that that's correct, that the only big change in human demographic history occurred in the 19th century. What kind of implications does this have as we enter into a new sort of understanding about climate and how it impacts population rates? Well, probably the most surprising result is not only related to population growth rates being similar, regardless of whether or not you're talking about hunting and gathering peoples or agricultural peoples. The other thing is that um, regardless of localized or regional environmental changes, this same growth rate is maintained. So we either are looking at some internal biological mechanism which is causing mortality rates to kind of put fertility rates into check, which creates a long-term equilibrium for that population. The other issue could be that it's a more larger scale, more interregional scale uh, climate changes that occur maybe on uh, hemispheric scales. So really this result shows that um, people are, at least during these periods of time, people are less susceptible to what's going on in their regional or local environments. Where do you hope to take this study going forward? Well, what we'd like to do is construct this database first for the Western United States and then eventually for the entire United States so that we can look at both variation over time and over space for the entire North American continent. We'll have the, the ability to look at how the density of human population is changing so we should be able to see if people are abandoning large regions and moving into what neighboring regions and understand how that relates to long-term climate change and some other variables as well. One, one advantage of looking at long time series, and, and, and you, you asked the question earlier about you know, what this means about our current realities in climate. 
we have a very short window when we look at historical records. We have a window of about 150 years, 200 years. Um, and, and obviously, there's certain records in Europe that go way back, sort of medieval documents, things like this. But we have a very limited uh, scale at which we can look at temporal change through time. So one thing that's very valuable with looking at long series of radiocarbon dates is that we can take certain regions and we can look at human adaptations to climate change in those different regions. And if we project this forward, we can say, okay, if we have a certain drought in the Great Basin or drought in Wyoming, where's the population going to go, right? What, what neighboring region would have the kinds of resources that would sustain the populations we have in Wyoming or, or in the Rockies or the Great Plains right now? It's, it's a good time for archaeology. We have something very valuable uh, to be able to contribute to multiple disciplines that are trying to look at the responses of holistic biodiversity. Professor Robert Kelly and Eric Robinson, thank you so much for being here today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Laramie artist Tara Pappas is well known for colorful, whimsical art that looks like it's lifted from the pages of a storybook or fairy tale. Pappas is also an elementary school art teacher, and as she tells Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer, it was her students who inspired her to get back to work as a studio artist. And I thought, what a great example to the kids it would be to have a working studio artist teaching them. And so that was kind of what got me going again after art school, because I kind of reached this block uh, where I wasn't creating anything. I had just had this creative block and I didn't know where to go from there. So how do your kids respond? I mean, do you notice them responding a certain way to you because you are an active studio artist? Definitely. I mean, I think they take what I say, they take my suggestions a little bit better <laughs> because they, they've seen my work hanging around town. I like to have a show somewhere around town pretty consistently just so that it's reaching them in different places that they might go. What can children teach us about art and creativity? They teach us a boldness that I think we lose over time. A lot of the kids that I teach, I might suggest certain things to them, but they'll they'll leave the instructional time and they'll just attack their artwork. They're excited, they're motivated, and that's something that's intrinsic. They have that urge to create. And I think we all have that urge to create as well, but I think we build up a lot of walls that we have trouble getting over. And you experienced that firsthand. Definitely. Creativity is something that you have to work at. It's something that you can lose over time. And it's something that I consistently work on every day. I'll come home from a day of teaching and I'll paint, I'll draw, I'll do something just to keep exercising my creativity. Now, you're going to be offering a painting workshop at the Laramie Montessori School on February 19th. And that's for kids. It's for adults they're going to be working off of one of your paintings. So how does that work? They are. So through Abundance Creative Arts, it's a studio in downtown Laramie. I offer painting workshops. And the Montessori School requested that I do a fundraiser for them. So it's going to be at the school in the Lincoln Community Center. And the way that works, I, I choose a painting that would be inspirational. And then we just go through the whole process the same process that I would go through when I create a piece of just layering and the piece that we're going to be doing is the joy of snow. And it's this kind of a honey brown bear looking up at the sky 
with the snowflakes falling, which is perfect for this time of year. Mm -hmm. um, but that piece is fun because it adds a lot of layers. I have scratching for the surface to add texture. We create our own snowflakes that we add to it. So in a sense, they're creating a similar painting to what I did, but there's still a lot of freedom in there to explore. And I encourage anyone who wants to to create their own characters and come up with their own stories. And you yourself draw from fairy tales and folklore and fables. It's interesting to me that you say that the foundation of your work is words. Yeah. So whenever I start a piece of artwork, I like to start it with a foundation of book pages. So I take old book pages and I'll collage them on my surface. And that kind of ties in with the storytelling aspect of my pieces. I think we're all natural storytellers. And I think we've kind of lost that as a society. And I've noticed in the kids I teach, we've, we've lost that kind of free spirit creating. There's all these confinements. And so I'm trying to bring that back, to bring back that desire to just be creative, tell your story, tell whatever story you feel like telling. And so kind of taking that natural inclination towards storytelling and giving some sort of visual cue. I, I just love the stories that come out of pieces that I create where I'm showing a glimpse of a story that hasn't actually happened yet. And just hearing based on the background of that person, kind of their understanding of what the story might be. It's really interesting. They look like they come out of pages of a storybook. Like I know a popular painting of yours is called Beyond the Lost Fur. So it's this bear that appears to be hibernating and he's curled around a house and then a hiker is walking across his back. Or you have uh, the mountain man where a man has a backpack full of mountains and he's planting them. Even though these are static paintings, there's actually a lot happening. Right. So I like to create some sort of action in the painting that needs a response. You know, when you look at my painting, you you want to respond. You want to know what's going on, why this is happening. You know, as a viewer, it's it's almost a bit frustrating because there seems to be something before and something after, but the painting doesn't show those things. Exactly. So I'm wanting to capture a glimpse in the middle of a story. It's funny because when I'm creating the piece, I don't even know what the story is going to be. But I think for me, it's important for my work. I guess it is my work that, that I'm capturing a moment in a story. I'm not telling you the story because I love that process of storytelling so much. Tara Pappas has an exhibition of her work at Coal Creek Uptown in Laramie until the end of the month. And she's teaching a painting workshop at the Laramie Montessori School on February 19th. Tara, so nice to talk to you. Thank you. Nice to be here. You've been listening to Open Spaces. If you missed any part of the program or want to hear an individual segment again, it's all available on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.